Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is Benji from Skin Dread. Big up Ilan B's podcast. Hear this. You know what? One thing I know. That's not Mepple. That's not Mepple. That's not Mepple. You're the podcast. That's not Mepple. That's not Mepple. That's not Mepple. You're the podcast. I choose one that's doing it now. Now step up Biza and let the people them know what going in at the heavy metal world right now. Go on and make tell them, tell them, go on, go on, son. Hello everybody, welcome to That's Not Metal, powered by You Discover. YouDiscoverMusic.com is the place to go and check out the latest and greatest news and reviews and features from the worlds of rock and metal and beyond. And uh, there is also a particularly excellent feature this week on Enter Sandman, which 27 years ago crashed the UK Top 5. Go and check it out at YouDiscoverMusic.com. Perrin, you were at Bloodstock last week, how was that? I was, it was great, yeah, as, as I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll go into further detail when we get round to doing a review, which will come, but uh, yeah, it was a great old time as always. How was the weather? Um, confusing, it was one of those things where like it'd rain for half a day and then it'd go just back and forth all the time, so you're constantly fucking around with layers, but you know, it wasn't the worst, but it, it did what's shit you, down a little bit. What's your layer of choice? You don't strike me as the sort of man who rocks a poncho. <laughs> no, I tend to just kind of wear a hoodie and then get annoyed when that doesn't actually have any waterproof quality to it. <laughs> Ryan, you didn't even buy a coat until a couple of years ago. What would you do in a downpour? Uh, not go out. Easy. <laughs> <laughs> just, just recluse. Recluse the shit yeah, out of just it. Live like a farmer, just don't go out in a shit weather. <laughs> I don't even know what to say to that. Coming up on today's show, we're going uh, we're going a little different this week by doing a special Time Tunnel episode where we're going to look at an album from the 70s, an album from the 80s, an album from the 90s, and an album from the noughties. Those albums are going to be the debut album from Van Halen, King Diamond's Abigail. I can't even look at you, Ryan, in even <laughs> saying it. I cannot. I just genuinely cannot wait. Yeah. Uh, the Rollins Band's Wait and The End of Heart take by kill switch engage since that seems to be a particularly massive talking point all of that and the news which starts can i get one word on you ryan about king diamond first uh, does that count that's a word have you ever listened to king diamond before Let's do this later. I can't. I can't get through. Right. I can't do this twice. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Big news this week comes from Disturbed, who have announced that their new album Evolution is going to be out on October the nineteenth, and the band have released a new song called "Are You Ready?" Ryan, this is the first time that I've read this week's notes that you've written here, and you said video features a man doing parkour away from laser robots. I think. A. I think that was actually I, I, I wrote that bit, yeah. <laughs> oh, did you? 
what the f- I've not seen the mu- I've obviously heard the song but uh, I've not seen the music video uh, what it's exactly how I've described it really there's not much to it than that it's just um <laughs> bloke running across roofs and stuff being chased by weird little they look like little drones just firing lasers at him and he's you know doing sick backflips and shit to get away from them while uh draymond does his thing i have just, <laughs> i have just had the best mental image of david draymond doing parkour <laughs> and i'm not sure my i'm not sure my brain will ever recover <laughs> my god i wish i'd have misread that in the first place um yeah it's not quite muse and the wolf man but fine um <laughs> Disturbed, are you ready? Is it just a case of... It feels like, at this point in time, Disturbed gonna Disturbed. I'm not sure anyone will be... Like, I'm not sure anyone will be surprised by the new Disturbed. Or, I don't mean that in a positive or negative way. Um, Fair? Yeah, I mean, I do like that it starts with uh, some synths that sound like a modernised version of the ridiculously dated synths that kick off the game on The Sickness, which sound like they belong on a kill to this album. It's ridiculous. Like, yes. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> that is a riff the size of a continent, though, the game. It's a good yeah. tune, yeah. It's just those yeah, synths that in the beginning are mental. <laughs> I'm absolutely unashamed in my love disturbed as everyone will know. I like them as well. Um, They're one of the few bands of this kind of... Um, sensational. I, mean, I know, because, you know, I've shot on Hailstorm and stuff on this, but... Um, I don't know, Disturbed have enough crunch to them, I guess. And, you know, I, Draymond, as funny as he is, he's got a hell of a knack for catchy vocal lines, hasn't he? And I think, you yes. know, that's a... I mean, think about, like, Inside is it inside the Fire. Um, the one, like, the verses on that are as catchy as the chorus. It's mental. And, like, this obviously isn't quite that good, but, you know, the, it's got some uh, some strong vocal work from Draymond. So, yeah. I, I always... Um... I always wondered uh, if the if the sound of silence would alter. This is the first time after kind of going disturbed. I'm just going to sound like disturbed after the success of the sound of silence. I do wonder if there will be a ballad or three on this record. Ryan, what you said about are you ready? I mean, like I've not listened to Disturbed outside of the singles that everyone's heard, and even I saw this coming. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like there was there's no surprise to it. There, Vocal lines are pretty predictable as, you know, it's, like you said, it's Disturbed doing Disturbed. Um, yeah, it's, it's fine. It's, you know what I mean? I, I can't really get that infused about <laughs> a new Disturbed song. I'm sorry. We got, well, we got negative feedback on the focus group page, which we are going to open the doors for in the next week. So be alert for that. Keep an eye on our Facebook page. Um... I, I just I, I, I just find it hard to believe that that any, that it would be disappointing to anyone. It's it's a it's a decent disturbed song. I, I mean I don't think that it's it, it doesn't it the last record was really good, I thought. Um but it doesn't it's not the kind of lead single like like the first time you heard Stricken or Believe. Yeah. Or Stupefy. Rah! Or Stupefy. Rah! <laughs> <laughs> we can't go, to go I, talking I'm, about Disturbed about an impression getting in there somewhere. Sorry. I would, I would like to point out that Perrin is chugging an energy drink and making <laughs> monkey noises in the first 10 minutes of this show. It's be a long podcast, isn't it? <laughs> Wait till it gets yeah, King the, Diamond. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, sensational. But yeah, the new Disturbed album is going to be called Evolution. It is out on October the 19th. It was interesting that um, to launch this single, they asked their fan base whether they wanted a harder track or a, um, or a ballad to launch this album. So I'll be intrigued to see what, what comes next. I do think we are going to get something ballady. Yeah, I mean, they normally have a few slower songs, don't they? Yeah. I, don't, like, I always find a ballad to be a weird choice as a lead single for some reason. Like, I always I always feel like with a lead single, you should come and slap them in the teeth and then maybe with the second song you release, you can go for a slower one. But um, yeah, that's just kind of my preference, I guess. No, I'm with you on that. I'm with yeah. you on that. It's, it's going oh, right. it, to end up on a UFC pay-per-view, though, isn't it? On the soundtrack. Like, it just sounds so made for... UFC or WWE or something, doesn't it? it WWE for certain, yeah. way too big. Uh, UFC are never, ever, ever going to drop Bring the Pain, and you know it. Yeah, fair. Uh, so, um, yeah, this week there was also news from Roadburn. Uh, super keen to get your thoughts on this, Perrin, because Thomas Lindbergh from At The Gates has been named as Roadburn's curator. What yep. does that mean, do you think, for the Roadburn lineup? Um, I mean, it's one of those things where it was announced and I didn't. I was, you know, there was no surprise at all because it feels like Thomas Lindbergh's at Roadburn every year anyway, whether it's with At The Gates or Disfear or The Lurking Fear or any of the band. I mean, uh, Skit System, who are kind of a mental cross-punk band he's had, have uh, teased that they're going to be doing a one-off show next year. And then Thomas Lindbergh gets announced as Roadburn curator and you go, huh, I wonder where that will be. Um, but so, yeah, so Thomas Lindbergh, while he is most famed for his work with At The Gates, he's been in a shitload of different bands and it, he's got... Um, you know, he's a very creative guy with a lot of kind of fingers in different pies. And it, it makes a lot of sense, I think, because he's going to be the kind of guy who can put on a really eclectic, interesting, but also heavy robot lineup. So I think it's, it's perfect, really. Uh, what kind of breeds of heaviness are we expecting through Limburg? Because obviously when Bannon was uh, was announced, it was pretty, you know, you knew what where kind of through Death Wish, what kind of avenue he was going to go through yeah is there, is there any kind of um hints as to what thomas Lindbergh will bring um i mean obviously the go-to things when you think of thomas Lindbergh are uh death metal and cross punk so i'd imagine there'd be a lot of that but also you know um i wouldn't be surprised to see some some weird prog thrown in there at some point you know either i think it's going to be suitably varied as roadburn always is that's why they get these guys in because it's not going to be someone who can put on a a one note bill you know it's always going to be someone who can do the festival justice mm. and uh headliner has been announced as sleep who are going to be doing two sets holy mountain obviously their classic album uh but they're also going to do their new album the sciences in full uh, what was your take on the sciences i enjoyed it yeah i mean it's um it felt like a a really suiting return for sleep you know they came back and they were honoring their kind of their strong points and just you know a really good sleep record and i feel like you know it's a little bit like when um like converge have done this where they've uh played two sets at roadburn and they've done a classic album and then something fresher and newer whether it was jane doe and blood moon or last year they you fail me and the dusk in us so like you know it's yeah. a kind of format that always seems to work so sleep doing holy mountain and the new one makes perfect sense again so, uh, also been announced, Have a Nice Life, Birds in Row, Vile Creature, Midnight, Seven That Spells, Heilung, Louise Lemon and Gore. Uh, anything that stands out there? Uh, Midnight are really good fun. They're like a 
like 80s style kind of proto black metal like in this basically really like venom is what i'm saying <laughs> but so if you like something that's um you know scuzzy enough to be linked to black metal but very rooted in early 80s heavy metal midnight are good fun i was quite surprised to see birds in row on this that feels um uh um what's the right word for it uh, I checked out the latest record, and it was, um, it's quite like, uh, it's not as artistically engaging as one would expect from the Roadburn lineup. Um, yeah, that's fair, but I mean, um, you know, they, they always have, to an extent, stuff that is just pure ahead, because, I mean, you know, I've just mentioned one of the bands that uh, Thomas Lindbergh has played with at Roadburn is Disphere, who are just a cross punk supergroup so you know mm. they always kind of have a bit of that yeah right um so that's the news from roadburn uh also massive news this week uh ticketmaster are shutting down their resale sites get me in and seat wave we've never had the discussion about secondary seating um what are your feelings on secondary seating like as you know, speaking from the perspective of someone who works at a music venue, although it's one that's a lot smaller and doesn't really have the problem of, you know, these, like, super tout shows, the amount of, like, emails that I've personally got saying, oh, I've bought this ticket off this website and the person didn't even send it and shit like that. So, like, as well as ripping people off, there's always the element of, like, fraud to it, essentially, as well. Um, pe- people are get- always getting ripped off left, right and centre and... I'm glad to see that they're shutting these um, just because it, it's not right for a ticket company to hold back some of their allocation to send on to these secondary websites, you know? Um, mm. So if it means people are going to get gouged less, brilliant. But I do fear that something else will just crop up in its wake. Ticketmaster, you know what I mean? Ticketmaster don't own all of them. Um, so, yeah, I'm sure there'll still be overseas ways for people to rip us off. My um, my biggest thing with these with these second like my biggest thing with these secondary uh, seating companies is when they hold back the best seats to sell them at an inflated price. Yeah, like uh, it's questionable as to uh, as to whether it's okay anyway to sell things at inflated prices because it sells out quickly and because of the demand and I understand the supply and demand thought process even if it's Um, but the biggest problem for me is that sometimes fans aren't given the opportunity to buy those seats Mm. yeah I mean I I used um, like Seatwave or something like that one of the first times I was going to a show because I think it was like Paramore the O2 sold out and you know it was the only option i had to get in and at that point it's essentially extortion you know what i mean when it's like wait you you cannot get this ticket another way so you have to pay pay this inflated prices it it's baffling to me that that's allowed to happen um but it has for years and years and years and i hope this is a step in the right direction yeah perrin have you ever bought from a secondary ticket inside i've not no i mean i i've always been kind of lucky enough to um to, to get reasonably priced tickets for the shows I really want to go to. And if something I want to go to sells out, that I tend to just kind of leave it there and go, you know, ah, well, maybe next time. Um, yeah, I mean, it's 
obviously I've got no problem with someone buying a ticket to a show, finding out they can't go or whatever, and then selling it on to someone else. That's perfectly reasonable. And I feel like, um, you know, uh, some kind of uh, hub to allow that to happen, in theory, that's not a problem. The issue is, is as we've said, when ticket companies start holding back tickets when tickets immediately go to these places before the rest of the public has had a chance to yeah. buy them like i've always i mean i don't know the, the the exact process of it or the intricacies of it but it's one of those things where i go why isn't that illegal like that feels like legitimate extortion in a way that should have some kind of regulation on it and it always amazed me that it, it didn't so obviously for, for me something like this closing uh it's a it's a step in the right direction. It's a question of you know how far that will go because like as Ryan says, these aren't the only ones in existence. There's still other ones out there that are fairly prominent. Um, it's interesting because sometimes you end up going to quote unquote sold out shows and the venue isn't full because of you know tickets have been technically purchased but they haven't actually been bought by fans who are going. Mm. So you know it's, so it's really weird. You go to a sold out show and half the venue is empty and it's like. How how has this happened? Like, so and that's damaging to the bands as well as the people going because you know they're playing up half full rooms. That's not mm. that's not always down to secondary ticket sites. So a lot of bands, teams, and stuff will just buy the last few tickets so that they get a sold out show. Um, yeah, which is baffling practice practice in itself. But yeah, that's something that happens. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll keep an eye on um, it, it. Let us know if you see anything that's an increase in fees or whatever, you know, the place to get us out, not Metal Pod, but we will keep an eye on this uh, to see if there's any kind of uptake from that. Um, in other news, Corner recording new music back in the studio. There's going to be a new album from Bloodbath on October 26th. We'll talk about that more nearer the time. It's going to be called The Arrow of Satan is Drawn. What Mastodon. a sick name. <laughs> yeah, it really is. And um, the promo picture featuring a crossbow. Oh, fuck yeah, yeah. I, I always enjoy when metal bands whip out a big fuck-off weapon for their pictures. <laughs> not, not in an innuendo way, but you know. <laughs> uh, ooh, uh, matron. <laughs> um, big weapons. Mastodon are apparently going to begin songwriting at the beginning of 2019. Uh, Kill Switch Engage, we're going to talk about a little bit later on. We will expect next week to be talking about new Bring Me the Horizon music because uh, last week there was a billboard that popped up in the centre of London with do you want to join a cult and there being a number that you can call and all the rest of it and it's uh, linked to a website called joinmantra.org August 21st is the date on that website so we'd expect Bring Me The Horizon to be releasing new music in the next couple of days or at least info on when we can expect that uh, music and really tragic news um to end with and that is um huntress vocalist jill janus uh passing away due to suicide um perrin i know you're a huntress fan um do you want to give everyone like uh a bit of a brief on why jill was such a beloved member of the metal community yeah i mean just to go first on the level that the level of connection I had to it because you know I never met Jill or anything like that so I can't speak personally but I know you know everyone seems to talk about what a great kind of what you know just a lovely person she was as well as a great interview things like that just an interesting person but um 
And though she is someone who uh, she's had quite prominent kind of uh, battles with mental health in the past. I think she was diagnosed with schizophrenia or something like that. So, you know, she has been quite outspoken about these things. And, you know, it's obviously tragic that in the end it, it got the best of her. But um, on, on a musical level, Huntress, when they kind of appeared at the early part of this decade, they, they, they were never really a band who were kind of, their praises were sung en masse by like a huge amount of people. But those, especially the first two records, I think, for, you know, trad-leaning heavy metal, but with a darker kind of tinge to it, where it's, you know, very much based in witchcraft and things like that, where, you know, it, it basically the first two Huntress records fucking rip is what they do. And, uh, you know, Jill's kind of vocal was a huge part of that because, you know, proper, like, banshee shriek on her that, that like, allowed those records to have that level of kind of intensity to them that um, something that you, something like trad heavy metal doesn't always have and that was what always kind of set Huntress apart for me and that was you know true live true on record and you know it's a real loss obviously yeah I, it's terrible terrible news man um yeah keep an eye on the the uh the news websites of the world um i think everyone's kind of putting out some pretty positive uh messages when it comes to to mental health i know lizzie from hailstorm has been particularly um prominent in the aftermath of this uh for doing more to to bring um to break the stigma of mental health and um yeah we're really saddened to hear that about huntress vocalist jill janus um so next week on the show we're going to bring back the mailbag and just open it for you guys to ask questions in an old school style we're also going to be reviewing new records by alice in chains and trophy eyes and some other bits and bobs but this week we thought we'd do something a little bit different um as i said at the beginning it's going to be albums from the 70s 80s 90s and noughties an album from each decade we're not going to do it in chronological order because i just don't want to wait to get to king diamond so let's do it <laughs> uh opening album King Diamond uh, is his second album since uh, after Merciful Fate disbanded. And uh, this album is something of a landmark in the world of heavy metal as it's the genre's first proper horror concept album. Um, Perrin, I would be astounded if you're not a King Diamond fan. I mean, this is the best record we're talking about this week, so yeah. Like this, mm. that I can sit. I know you're giving me looks there, but I, you know, <laughs> I stand by that fully. This to me is. It's a, don't get me wrong. It's a great record, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I stand by it massively, as we'll get to with the the rest of these records. But this to me is one of the greatest heavy metal albums of the 1980s, which a lot of people would consider to be its golden era. Abigail by King Diamond is a masterpiece of 80s heavy metal that still stands to this day as being fucking brilliant uh my my thing with this record is i really think that you get the most out of it by following the story with its lyrics as yeah. you go with it because the like it's I, I feel like the more you buy in to the story that the, the, the album tells the more you get out of it particularly and particularly like it brings out all manner of shit musically yeah i mean should should i run through the story quickly for anyone who's interested Oh, we'll get there. Right. Um, let's, let's talk about the relationship between horror and heavy metal first. Okay. Um, Ryan, are you a horror fan? 
Um, in passing, like I really like. I like silly horror more than I like actually actually intense horror. So like I was mad into like um, Drag Me to Hell and stuff. Oh hell yeah! Stuff, <laughs> you know, like stuff in that vein rather than the actually good ones. If that means. <laughs> <laughs> Drag Me to Hell is um, good. Fuck off. <laughs> yeah, it's fucking incredible. Um, but uh, the reason why I wanted to ask that first is because when it comes to horror and heavy metal, uh, we spoke about it a little while ago on the question of the week. Those two things in tandem, King Diamond went down a slightly different route to most of the things that had that had kind of rose to prominence in in terms of wider knowledge. So Kiss, despite Gene Simmons spitting blood and whatnot, like had very little in common with horror. It like the thought process of it, like Gene's always been open about his love for Spider Man and of course the his variations of the horns is from Spider Man. Like it felt like the thought process was more about be Kiss being superheroes than to scare Middle America despite that being what happened. And Alice Cooper had a little bit more leadings towards horror, but not to the lengths that King Diamond would go to. No, I mean, King Diamond is um, all, I mean, it is, I was about to say, it's because it, it is cartoonish. Like, of course it is, but it, it always felt a little bit more serious than those things. But, you know, Alice Cooper is very clearly like a horror show and he's just a, you know, just a lovely dude. But, um, like King Diamond, uh, that's part of why he was such a massive inspiration to things like the black metal scene coming in his wake because it was like, this, when we get to the telling about the story on this album, it's genuinely dark as fuck. Yeah. Like, Evil. It, yeah, the, I mean, you know, he's a genuine Satanist. So like the the level of kind of conviction and the, the level of genuine darkness to it compared to the more cabaret stuff that had kind of come before, you know, it's a it's a landmark for that, definitely. Did it help that he was from Denmark? And because when 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 you, I, I always remember that King Diamond would would often play with interviewers in the eighties, like people from outside of our circles, and he would tell them that he genuinely lived in a crypt in a castle yeah. and all of these <laughs> kind of things. And with him being from deepest, darkest, icy Denmark, it um it kind of led a little bit more not credence to it, but a little bit more um outside of the realm of the norm. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's the same thing that plays into Norwegian black metal, isn't it? It's that kind Absolutely. of that, Absolutely. That, that northern icy darkness. So, all right, Abigail is <laughs> it's a horror concept record. Um, Perrin, I'll let you do the 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 story in depth because I've tried to nail it inside a sentence. I'll let you do it seriously first yeah you can't do it in a sentence <laughs> okay so basically abigail is it's about a it the, one of the best things about this album is the storytelling of it like it's uh, the essential part of this record i think yeah but like obviously like with uh his vocal performance where he does you know different voices for different characters and shit like that i actually went to a show a couple of years ago where he was doing this album in full and it was like it was like going to like a theater production because he had fucking I like i saw it as well yeah, he had like actors and stuff like doing the different parts. It was brilliant. It was the kind of the perfect record for that environment. But anyway, the, so the story is 
um, a, a couple move into an old mansion that they've inherited from like uh, a relative who's passed on. Um, they get warned along the way by these spooky horseman chaps that uh, they shouldn't go because uh, <laughs> shit will go down. Um, turns out the castle is haunted by like this like old count who was the the ancestor who lived there. He tells the protagonist Jonathan about um, kind of his story. Basically, his wife. Uh, got pregnant with someone else's child and in a fit of rage he threw her down the stairs killing her and causing the child abigail to be born uh, stillborn and then he takes the the body of abigail and mummifies it in a casket down in like the basement and he warns jonathan that if he stays then the kind of spirits within the house or whatever will cause his wife miriam to be used as a vessel to uh give birth to a reborn abigail so you know, next thing that happens is Miriam starts getting unnaturally pregnant. Like, you know, within a fucking week, she's huge. It's like, oh shit, right, okay. <laughs> so, um, Abigail, the spirit of Abigail begins to possess Miriam. Uh, Miriam tells Jonathan that the only way to stop this is to throw her down the stairs the way that um, the Count killed his wife. Uh, but then Abigail takes over kind of Miriam's body and pushes him down the stairs. So he dies. Miriam then gives birth to Abigail and dies. Abigail begins to... Um, it's it's implied that she then begins to eat her own kind of... Uh, her previous body from out of the casket for kind of life force. And then the horseman guys turn up and go, oh shit, this is shit, isn't it? And then they... Uh, <laughs> they, they That's my paraphrase. He's paraphrasing, Yeah, this is pretty rubs. And then they... So they drive Spike through her body and bury her in the woods. And that is the story that unfolds over these nine tracks. I love that you've told that as if it was stuff that's just happened to your mates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So then. Yeah. You won't believe what happened next, right? He said this, but yeah. So yeah, that's, that's Abigail. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's what I, I went with. Uh, a couple in the 1700s enter a haunted new home and give birth to a satanic daughter via demonic possession before said daughter is murdered by being nailed to her coffin, but not before eating the sarcophagus of her stillborn self, in a nutshell. Um, so, for 1987... That's yeah. pretty fucking gnarly, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. It really is. And even for the worlds of for the worlds of heavy metal, which, you know, we pride ourselves on being a bit darker, a, a bit more leaning towards horror, as we were saying. But there is a vast difference between this and any of the kind of sorcery and Dungeons and Dragons-y sort of things that were being thrown around at the time. Yeah, you could even say it's a... I mean, it's a lot more flowery and kind of... Um, it, it's it's not as blunt as something like Cannibal Corpse, you know? But yes. in regards to the, the, the genuine kind of macabre within the content, there's a line there. Ryan. Hello, mate. <laughs> Hello. Um... So, did you go into the de the depths of this story, or did you just take it at face value? Because um, I I bet you're that you're dying to talk about the word Miriam and how a name so so basically sounding like an old deer can sound so terrifying. Yeah. Um. So. <laughs> a, a mate of mine went to me. What are you doing on the podcast this week, then? And, I, and as soon as I said King Diamond, he just laughed, and he and he just went, "Make sure you read the backstory first. I was like, "All right, fine." Right. Okay. 
So so I read it and was like, all right, cool. I'm I'm probably not going to be able to like understand even the slightest bit of this. It's probably going to be like you know these are a band. This is a band that um, like like parents said, so many black metal bands hold in such high regard. So I was expecting pretty incoherent vocals. What I wasn't expecting is <laughs> <laughs> was that falsetto. Um, honestly. Like I, I really, I really struggled the first few times I tried to listen to this. It, it was, it was kind of an endurance test to get through that vocal, um, and then, uh, and then that same mate showed. Lion. <laughs> and then that's that same mate showed me the clips um, from I think it's Clerks Two, where they they have the um, something from a different album where where it's like wailed something about let me help you out of that chair or something. Oh, grandma, yeah. Yeah. Grandma! Yeah, that's uh, Welcome Home. Yeah. Um, and then I was like, well, oh, it was good enough for Kevin Smith. I should give it... <laughs> <laughs> I should give it a, pro- give it a proper go. Um, yeah, this is mental. I didn't know what was going on. Even though I'd read the story, I was still so disorientated by what was happening. Um, yeah. It's... It's so oh the thing about this record I'm going to ask you in a second Perum like why you consider it one of the best records of the 1980s but for me I, I think part of its appeal is just how insanely overblown absolutely every last millisecond of this record is there is nothing minimalist or restrained about this whatsoever even the intro of Black Horseman where it goes all kind of acoustic and the kind of well the the relative calm after the fucking insane storm even that features kind of horror voices and these multi-layered insane falsetto pierced screams like it's fair to say that this is (laughs) in no way a shrinking violet this album yes it genuinely might be the maddest record i've ever listened to um it's yeah like because because even because what, what i ended up doing was going all right cool like what what bits of this are are sort of re- relevant to me and stuff and like the the, the instrumentation throughout is all is always really good but then even there there's there's just mad shit so like on omens which i reckon was is probably my favorite song on it there's this random like original game boy castlevania style synth just <laughs> just chucked in the middle of it yep it's like yeah it it pulls no punch like king diamond does not give a fuck if you think he's ridiculous like is is the you know what i mean not that, one that's the, not a single solitary fuck does that man give i actually like i wanted to i wanted to ask actually like how how was this received at the time like because i can't put my head put put myself in a headspace of being like a reviewer then getting sent this and going all right press play (laughs) yeah i mean i I think it helps that um obviously king diamond had come from merciful fate first so it wasn't like he just emerged with this album and everyone went what the fuck like merciful fate had they didn't exist for very long in their original kind of run it was just a few years really but it was like you know only three records yeah like 83 84 kind of time and then um so and then that is um his, his, you know, his vocal style was very immediately apparent from there. So you, know, you can stick on the first Merciful Fate album and he's doing all the, the wailing stuff and it's like, fuck. But, you know, he was like nothing else at the time. Uh, like, you know, because we're talking the early 80s when high-pitched singers were all the rage. You know, it's the, the peak of New Wave of British Heavy Metal. But even mm. in comparison to that, the what King Diamond was doing with his voice 
was totally out there. But you know, those those albums are regarded as as classics. And then when Merciful Fate broke up and he kind of led into his solo career, people kind of had a little bit of knew what to expect with him. But then what he took further with his uh, solo career was was the stuff like the storytelling and the concepts. Which you know, I I am a big fan of King Diamond and Merciful Fate, but I consider this album to be his finest hour from from both of them. And it's the 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 quality of the music itself in tandem with the storytelling and everything that's going on with that that makes this you know what it is it took me a long while to get into king diamond while i found it much easier to get into merciful fate because i think the the level of i mean it's it's mad to say the level of theatricality because it suggests that there isn't as much theatricality well no there isn't as much theatricality in merciful fate merciful no but fate it's still is... still more theatrical than everything else that was going on around <laughs> yeah yeah t- yeah too true but i found it more because the the metal is more straight ahead in yeah. merciful fate it took me longer to get into king diamond um i think that one of the one of the peak reasons that note that following this as a story really helps build the world that you have to kind of enter to really get the most out of abigail is the way the lead guitars are used in this out in this album is almost really cinematic fashion as well like they're used almost as interludes in the story like the haunting passages that are yeah. descriptives as the as the narration and the dialogue in the story through these various creepy voices are really augmented by these fucking massively overblown uh like when the when the horsemen show up and things like that, it really helps the descriptive side of this record, yeah, the like, instrumentation and the particularly the soloing on this record. Yeah, but there's stuff like you know the beginning of a, a mansion in darkness where it kind of feels like they're with that gallop. It almost feels like they're galloping towards the mansion. You know, absolutely. It really paints the picture of it. And you know the the lineup he had on this record musically is insane. He's got Mickey D on drums later of Motorhead yep. fame. He's got uh, Timmy Hansen on bass, who was the bassist in Merciful Fate, and then Andy LaRock on guitar, who, you know, one of the true heavy metal guitar heroes, like yeah. the and, solos. And, basic, and, and basically he's right-hand man for much of his career. Yeah, totally. But like, you know, the solos and the lead thing, it's like virtuoso levels of incredible. So uh, in kind of wrapping up Abigail, um, why is it one of the finest records of the 1980s, Perrin? And uh, what what relation did it have to what was going on in the world of of rock and metal in that kind of mid to late eighties period? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, bands like Iron Maiden and that were still in their prime. But um, I mean, at that time, when coming out of Merciful Fate, going into King Diamond's solo career, glam is becoming the the biggest thing in the world, and kind of it was never as. Uh, it, it was always darker and more credible than that. Like, it was never as, you know, Sunset Strip, obviously. But um, but it, what it did share was that level of just overblown, you know, no-holds-barred, everything up to 11. But, like... Yeah. The and decade then, of excess. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and it don't matter what portion of rock and metal you go into, the excess is there. Exactly. But then, you know, it's, you've also got at this time black metal and death metal are starting to kind of bubble up from the underground and those are things which would have taken influence from 
you know, especially his work in Merciful Fate, but also this as well in terms of the darkness, the fact that he wore corpse paint, stuff like that. Like, even the the super high vocals, obviously a black metal scream is very different to what King Diamond does, but it's a, a super high visceral vocal kind of approach, which is exactly what King Diamond does as well. He's just singing while he does it. And why I consider this to be a masterpiece in the way I do and one of the best 1980s heavy metal albums is what I was saying, the the combination of the storytelling where, you know, I, I am glued onto every word King Diamond says on this album. And it's not, and he, he does it with such brilliant vocal lines as well. It's not just the words are interesting. Like his melodies are so catchy and brilliant and the way he enunciates words. My favorite bit is the bit in um, Seventh Day, uh, was it? Um, Seventh Day of July, 777. Uh, and uh, the bit where he goes, Bastard baby! <laughs> <laughs> and it's like he just bends his words in a way to just make it pop in a way a movie scene would. You know, he's playing. I love those low end growls. Yeah, like th- those kind of the way he uh, enunciates his words in almost a growl. Yeah, and then you know he'll go onto the the super high falsetto for like the more ghostly parts and things like that, where it's you know it's just perfect theatre. But in tandem with that, you've got the 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 music with not only his stuff, but you know the guitars are perfect. Nineteen eighties heavy metal, pitch perfect. The the level of songwriting across this, even if you didn't have the story, these would be incredible heavy metal songs because they're so catchy, they're so well written, they're so invigorating. You know, I can't listen to The Family Ghost or the song Abigail without wanting to bang my head, you know, regardless of it not actually being that heavy because it's 1980s, but you know, mm. it's perfect heavy metal. And the, the, the crescendo of that title track, when all of those synths kind of swallow the song whole, fucking yeah. brilliant. And it's stuff that's like, you know, that's it's coming through to this day. And, you know, I've been spending a lot of the year talking about how much I fucking love Tribulation. And the the level of drama, the kind of gothic edge to it, but just those guitars as well. You know, Tribulation guitars is super merciful fate in King Diamond. So it is something where, you know, you can listen to this and definitely tell it's from the 1980s, but it, it's also timeless. Perfect. All right, King Diamonds, Abigail. There you go. Now 31 years young. Shout out, King Diamond. All right, let's go to the 90s next. Uh, the Rollins Band and Wait. Um, gents, what are your opinions of Henry Rollins' musical outputs? Um, I, I am definitely a fan of uh, Black Flag and, you know, Rollins' work with that. Um, especially, you know... Damaged and My War, obviously, two absolute kind of, two of the best albums to ever come out of 80s hardcore. Black Flag, as they went along, got much weirder, didn't they? <laughs> like, mm. like yeah. you, you know, uh, if you listen to the late period of Black Flag albums from their original kind of run, that's when you've got Rollins starting doing all the mad spoken word stuff and they're bringing in kind of jazzy elements and things that you wouldn't ex- uh, typically associate with what people think of as Black Flag. But, um, Beyond Black Flag, I've never really delved in that much. You know, I've never really gone in on the Rollins band or anything else he's done that much. Yeah, and right. for me, um, I like my my War is brilliant. Damage is also really good, but I'm not, I'm not um, the biggest Black Black Flag fan. I feel like I've always preferred Henry Rollins the man to Her- to Henry Rollins the musician. Do you know what I mean? Like he's mm. he's a brilliant um, storyteller. 
He's a hell of a character. Like the dude got to sing in his favorite band by going to see them all the time, and you know, what I mean, like his the legend of Henry Rollins is so strong. And um, yeah, like like Perrin, I'd never delved into Rollins band before. Yeah, it's it's an interesting musical journey for Rollins because, like you say, Flag, like he left Black Flag in '86, mm. and it got slightly weirder. Um, he did. He he did a couple of solo records that are not on any of the streaming services. You can go check them out on YouTube called Hot Animal Machine, and I forget what the other one's called. Um, and there were two early Rollins Band records that kind of it it continues the pace driven stuff from Black Flag, but the the second half of both of those records are super super experimental. But in 92, the Rollins band got signed to a major label and also um, had Andy Wallace join them, who was riding the crest of a wave for being the engineer on Nevermind and as well as loads of other wicked records. Um, it felt like in 92, when they did the end of Silence, they kind of never looked back after they upped their production and Sonics because it really helped the Rollins band to, to realise their sound. Mm. Uh, that album itself, The End of Silence, is like, it's 72 minutes long and there's, it's only 10 tracks long, even though it's 72 minutes. And it's 30 minutes of that just Henry talking. <laughs> well, it's a lot of doomy and jammy stuff. Yeah. Uh, as much as that, like super elongated. Like there's songs on it that are like ten and eleven minutes. There's a couple of eight minute jobs. It's it's super long, but it felt like the song that opened that record, "Low Self Opinion," was a massive turning point for that band because on weight they began tightening shit up and all the better for it gents what's your feelings on weight i had no idea what to expect what to expect going into this but it was um it actually caught me off guard his delivery um because obviously going from black flag to this the way that um the opening track he he almost like he's got this sort of like almost he's almost half rapping it it's like yeah do you, do you know what i mean like he's 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 sticking with the bass line and like essentially essentially this this record's a vehicle for his spoken word, I feel like. It's so um it's so Did the did the funk rock elements take you by surprise? A little bit, yeah. Like one one of the first notes that I put down was it was that this sounds like Rage Against the Machine are really tired. Um because 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 <laughs> it, <laughs> it is, it's it's really it's really slow it leans a lot more on the grooves than anything else um, musically. But then Henry just doing his very, very intense um, sort of letting his mind go over this record. It's, it's a re- it's such a weird listen. This it, cause it, cause it is almost just like listening to a man rant in his bedroom, but over funk, funk metal well, funk, funk rock stuff. Um, yeah, I, I'm still sort of spun out by this. I wasn't expecting it at all. I like wasn't really sure what I expected. So when you know it came in, I knew, I knew that it was kind of. Um, I expected it to sound more '90s than Black Flag, obviously, knowing that um, 
not only is it from the 90s, but it was something that had a level of commercial appeal in the 90s. You know, people talk about... Uh, what's it's the big... wild, isn't it? That this I know, was, but yeah. This was, yeah. Especially that the song is Liar, which is the one that feels the most like Henry just sort of ranting at something. Like a lot of like the verses on that song barely have instrumentation. So it's weird that that was the big song. But like, yes, yeah, so and knowing that it's something that had like MTV play in the 90s, I was expecting it to... You know, when you associate the 90s with um, just kind of weird and creative stuff that somehow has a level of kind of commercial viability to it, whether that's, you know, typo negative or fucking Marilyn Manson, whatever it is, uh, that seems to be a running theme for a lot of the stuff that was notable in the 90s. And I I got that from this, you know? And... Mm. You know, it, it obviously has those, the, the funk rock and stuff, and it almost reminded me a little bit, there were parts that reminded me a bit like, um, almost like this was Henry's Fugazi, if he was, you know, coming out of Black Flag. This is where it gets a lot more, um, I mean, I mean, I know I've said about the, the later Black Flag albums getting really out there compared to the earlier stuff, but if you were to compare this to Damaged, obviously it's so much more creative and weird and off the wall in a kind of... Mm. You know, it has the the kind of jazzy touches. I love the drums on this album, the way they're constantly like attacking and they're really intricate. But so it it does feel like, even though you could say there are parts that feel like a jam session with him talking over it, it's not. I don't feel like it ever wanders off track too much in a way that's mm. um, you know uh, detrimental to it. I would feel like it it has enough focus on the song. Maybe and I mean I've not heard that previous record you were talking about, but maybe in a way mm. that that one wouldn't so much. So, you know, no, when you, yeah, so when you like, and there's stuff like, uh, like the chorus on Civilized, where it's almost got that kind of sloganeering kind of chant thing that uh, gives it that level of hookiness. Yeah, I, I think that it's, it's so, it's there, it's a w- really weird amalgamation of different things that happen to be popular at the time. It's not as, obviously, it's not an intentional thing, but like, the the when you listen to the doomier sludgier side of what Soundgarden were doing and that more Sabbath influenced sound there's a lot of that on this record yeah that almost reminded uh, me of my war a little bit yeah abs- uh, yeah I can I can hear that but when you add in that more funk adult kind of thing that really pops off at various different times on this album. But like the rhythm section in particular, like um, they, there's a, there's a new bass player on this record, uh, Melvin Gibbs, who made a massive difference to their sound. I mean, the bass is more prominent in the mix and he's playing, he's fucking phenomenal on it. But you mentioned the drummer as well. Um, I'm a sucker for hard hitting drummers. Yeah. And Sim Kane uses one of those fucking massively deep snares. Yeah, the crackling is brilliant. Yeah, like like where he's so fucking hard hitting and he has that deep snare. It's kind of in a slamming league with Mike Borden from Faith No More. Um, so that that kind of thing, uh, but those elements being thrown in together, and that's before you even get to Rollins himself. But what's mm. interesting to me is when you look at those seminal hardcore bands from America in the 80s, where they went next musically, super interesting. Like, Jello Biafra from the Dead Kennedys did this 
did some fucking trademark mental stuff. <laughs> like there was, there was this like um, he he did this electro punk band called the Witch Trials, where his stuff is kind of much like Rollins, kind of spoken word, but through the eyes of a fucking psychopath. Um, and he does this kind of he did this really kind of mad industrial punk band called Lard with Al Jorgensen yeah. from Ministry. Again, like, it's... When you listen to the Dead Kennedys, what Jello Biafra brought to that is that fucking madcap vocal style. You know, that set the Dead Kennedys apart. If you listen to their musical canvas, they're a, they're a hardcore band from the 80s. But when you add Jello Biafra into that mix, when you isolate that and throw it forward... It's no surprise, really, that he goes fucking insane in different areas. Yeah. Um, Ian Mackay, Fugazi, obviously, like the the thing that carried through from my the threats of Fugazi is the DIY aesthetic, mm. right? That was that was Mackay's mantra, and that was the thing that moved forward. What's interesting to me is the crossover between Danzig and yeah. Rollins. It's super interesting because. They've both got their weird take on the blues. Mm. Like, Danzig's music is super bluesy, but it's done through this kind of satanic PVC rocking stripper style, right? <laughs> whereas, whereas Rollins's take on it, like there's a lot of, on weight in particular and where they kind of went from here, a lot of repetition in the music, and with that kind of storytelling style of Rollins's, it's just his where his musical journey, his next step, I think is the most experimental of those. It's a cross between him and it's it's a it's a fight between him and Mackay. Yeah, Fugazi get pretty weird. Yeah, but the um, the the level of unexpected that comes from the Rollins band at all times. Like, it feels like there's... While there's an anvil slam and a groove to this record, there is nothing predictable about it at all. And I think that's kind of, like, captured by what happened with Liar. I mean, for that song to be an MTV hit is fucking mad. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I first had no and foremost. idea about that, and that's insane. It's not even the catchiest song on the album, but it's the somehow the one that gets big. It's the well, most abrasive, with, with the exception of Tired, I think it's probably the fucking most anti-commercial thing on Yeah, there. Tired's yeah. uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, but like, uh, the Liar being, like, it, I mean, partially fueled by the video, which is fucking amazing, shot by um, Anton Corban, who was like um, Depeche Mode's photographer and has been Metallica's photographer for fucking years now as well. So when they do those tour programs and you get those kind of artier shots and the the photos that are inside um, load and reload and all that sort of thing. That's the guy who shot the Liar video. But one of the maddest things about Liar, if you've never seen it, is it was nominated for a Grammy in 1994. <laughs> and if you've never seen the performance of the Rollins band <laughs> doing Liar at the Grammys, like YouTube it straight away because... the. 
the world was fucking surreal when alternative rock took over the mainstream in the 90s a lot of really fucking surreal things happened yeah and i think that the rollins band doing liar at the grammys is is really high on the list of what the fuck is going on if you consider what the grammys are like were before it and have been after the alternative boom are you watch rollins in a in a tuxedo being as confrontational as you can imagine when faced with the sort of i mean that was the year that like that cheryl crow and all I want to do is have some fun, like <laughs> kind of kind of dominated the Grammys to give you an idea of the sort of vibe that was going on in popular music at the time. So I have Rollins kind of doing the I hide behind a smile and like gurning in their faces. It's the bit when he, he like does the really long extended uh, extended like hammed up apology for lying and then goes sucker <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it's it is fucking super if you've never seen it like go ahead and on the record itself i mean civilized is a fucking rant about gun control anger yeah that nearly nearly 25 years on and it's an argument that's still being had today uh, and to, to me the the black sabbath influence on this record is one of the best things about it it's it's one of the most interesting things about black sabbath's in uh influence on things to me is when it moves outside of the traditional walls of heavy metal like when you consider the black sabbath influence on the varna and soundgarden when it's thrown in with a rhythm section that is uh, i mean drums not so much difference but bass playing styles between geezer butler and melvin gibbs totally different Mm. and the different sort of dynamic that it gives really high quality sludgy groovy catchy riffs it's fucking mind-blowing yeah one of the things that i like obviously this is a similar time that a band like helmet were kind of yes around but the way you listen to helmet and they they often They'll kind of lock into a riff, and it will be it'll be quite repetitive, but it's so locked into it that's kind of the point. Um, Rollins Band isn't that. It can be a similar type of riffing at points, but it's nowhere near as um, uh, like as you know as locked in as repetitive as something like Helmet. Instead, it's much more uh, unpredictable and can kind of go in any direction at any point. So it's an interesting kind of alternative take on that style of riffing. Yeah, and I mean this is the. It feels like rhythm sections were so vital at this time as well like that thick textured sound goes brilliantly in helmet in prong as well from this kind of period but um yeah like i I mentioned the funk rock thing because it's mad to consider that this was a band that that toured with the red hot chili peppers Mm. yeah and it made and it made sense bizarrely and it's it's a it's a total. I mean, when you think of like the Chili Peppers and Fishbone and that kind of side of things, you, you kind of gravitate towards the. It's natural to gravitate towards the wackier side of things because those yeah. bands were crazy drug-addled lunatics. <laughs> but to hear it through the sound, th- channeled through 
such a nihilistic musical canvas. And when you throw Rollins's personality on top of that, um, Rollins is super interesting at that time because they went out on Lollapalooza, which was a tour for the weirdos, right, in the early mm. 90s. That was the whole point of it was like, hey, let's let's get all these weird, artsy things that don't fit elsewhere and make it all fit together and be a celebration of, of kind of weirdo counterculture. And I was watching this MTV News thing a little while ago um, about him talking about Lollapalooza and him being like, it's difficult to be up there shouting about why you hate your dad and hate life and hate everything about it while cool kids with cigarettes stand there and kind of laugh at you while they wait for Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> it's, it's, it's such a, an interesting take that this album was fucking massive and this band were still weirdos in the land of weirdos. Yeah. yeah. It's just like, it, it's the combination as well though, isn't it? Because when you think of Henry Rollins, I think one of the last things that comes to your mind is funk. Do you know what I mean? Like you don't expect mm. that at all. He's such a straight ahead kind of guy that you just... Rollins popping his elbows. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't see that man doing the robot. <laughs> but like, but that. It, Nor do I want to. <laughs> fucking, he might, he might do these days. He seems to have loosened up a bit. But um, yeah, but yeah, he, um, it, it t- that totally caught me off guard on its own. Um, and you know what you guys said about, um, you know, you mentioned um, the Sabbath influence and Perrin. You mentioned the Fugazi. Like, one of the things that Rollins has always kind of been very open about is that he's emulating his idols. And Ozzy Osbourne's one of his idols. Ian MacKay's is, might might end up have ended up being one of his best mates, but he was looking up to that dude when he was in bands. Like mm-hmm. it, this, you know, it being the Rollins band and you know being ex- pretty much exclusively his thing. It totally, it it makes sense in that that all these things would be pulled in because he's never he's never once shied away from the fact that he's a music fan who happens to have got to do music. And and this is what that sounds like. It just hap- It just so happens that you know, while a lot of you know mu- mu- fans thrown into that position might use it to to revel and celebrate, he uses it to be really pissed off at everything. And yeah, and I respect that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I should also throw out just before we move on, um, Chris Haskett, the guitar player, is the other guy that I hadn't kind of mentioned. Like his his ability to tie all of this together because you've got the, that rhythm section are super locked in for a first record together it's fucking mad yeah. how in the pocket they were together um and you've got rollins who is the the gnarling gnashing front piece of that band mm. uh chris haskett's guitar playing is fucking superb the riffing i've already mentioned but that that dude ended up playing doing bits with david bowie and Tool as well, which is, again, Tool are a kind of interesting band to throw in here because Tool on Undertow, which would have been the same sort of era, would have taken influence from the Rollins band. I think that that's, that's a band who, that period of Tool, just that record, yeah. there's a real semblance. When, it, when you listen to Sober and consider that thudding, hypnotic bass playing, uh, the way that 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 congeals together. There's a lot of that 
in the Rollins band. And I think that once they tighten things up on this, I, I'm, I'm fine with with the end of Silence. I think it gets a bit gets a bit out there for for my for my taste in particular. Um, but once that all gets tightened up and just becomes a bruising kind of, kind of fucking pickaxe to the center of the forehead. When it becomes uh, the damaged album cover. Yeah, yes, absolutely. <laughs> fucking absolutely punch that mirror. So there you go. <laughs> the Rollins Band. If you've never checked it out, go and listen to Wait from the 1990s, 1994 specifically. All right, let's do the noughties before we do. No, fuck it. Let's do Van Halen first. Because um, it feels like uh, Killswitch will be a good way to end because we'll talk about jesse and howard being on stage together um van halen's 1978 debut album is one of america's most revered rock albums of all time it is part of an exclusive club of diamond selling albums which basically means that it shifted over 10 million copies in the united states of america and is regarded as not only one of the best rock albums of the 1970s but one of the greatest debut albums in the history of the game. I have absolutely no idea what to expect from either of you on this, which is why this was picked. <laughs> Gentlemen, Van fucking Halen, thoughts? Uh, this is the one album of theirs I like. I mean, I like odd kind of tracks here and there. Like, you know, I'll take Hot for Teacher, I'll take Panama, but... Oh, well, oh, that's good of you. Yeah, I mean, but... <laughs> <laughs> right, I I feel about stuff like Van Halen, particularly Kiss. Kiss are the one who I think are actually shit. Uh, I feel Maybe about this stuff <laughs> the way you talk about like Iron Maiden or Saxon right. or whatever. Right, okay. Like, I I guess it's just my taste that I prefer the more metallic edge to, which is why you know I fucking love you know Maiden, obviously. Um, yeah. But this stuff is often really ploddy and boring, and like kiss is so dull like they're they're overblown but it's really really fucking boring and they're like i don't think they you have are lucky songs. there's a continent separated us at this point <laughs> this is how i feel when you say power slave is all yeah, right but yeah so but um so and when van halen get later on like you know i've i've only, i've never really listened to many of their records in full um right one of the ones I have listened to in full is 5150, which is a shocking record. It's fucking woeful, 5150. Mate, it is the definition no. of a polished turd. Every kind of no. It is so... <laughs> like, I, I, the thing is, I don't want to... The reason why I'm not full-blown just letting fly here is because <laughs> I feel like it's very important to separate van hagar and van halen because purists do so i know that there are a lot of people that love van halen who would applaud you for saying that about 5150 <laughs> and they are very different entities yeah like, um the the kind of pandora's box that was opened by 1984 and then diamond dave leaving yeah, but I guess to totally open the door for fifty one fifty and the the kind of ballad heavy synth synth led yeah rock the, that kind the of fucking synths on that record oh my god they're bad um, I will end you <laughs> <laughs> mate the drum sound on fifty one fifty when it goes fast is like my computer blue screening 
yeah, I hear you. They're, they're, like, don't get me wrong. There's bits about it's what's what's fascinating about the debut Van Halen record compared to Fifty One Fifty is that for like Fifty One Fifty came out nearly a decade later and yet sounds way more dated than this album that comes from 1978 yeah. does. I mean, but, but what I guess I was saying is is this stuff, uh, when it gets to its most bloated, uh, I, I'm not into. Like, my favourite glam band have always been Motley Crue and it's because Motley Crue have more edge to it. You know, there's punk there, there's heavy metal. Like, it's, it's more legitimately kind of edgy and dangerous feeling you know i know they're ridiculous but it's got more danger factor to it than kiss ever did or to me van halen especially when yeah. van halen go into the 80s um so you know i i can't handle that horribly polished glam stuff um we'll get to, to an, that yeah yeah to an extent i mean you know i like you know that there are standout songs here and there like you know i'm not going to be like oh yeah living on a prayer shit but um I guess this leads me. Not. This <laughs> I guess this leads me into the fact that that's why I like this Van Halen album over all the other ones because it's what well, I'm not. You know, absolutely in love with it. I do think Abigail is much better. If this was the album you were thinking of when you were giving me weird looks for saying that's better, uh, I fucking stand by it. It is. It absolutely is the album nope. that I was thinking of. But yeah. But yeah, Abigail's better anyway. Um, but yeah, this, but this does. It's a more organic record, and it's kind of got more life to it to me. And that's why it's the one that I will go, yeah, you know, I'll take the debut Van Halen. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll compare Van Halen to Korn to kind of back up what, you were say, what you're saying there a little bit later on. Uh, but Ryan, Van Halen, before we go yeah, into the record um, itself. Super, super limited knowledge of him. I didn't think that I knew very much about him at all. And then I realised that, oh, wait, I recognise almost every song on this record. Probably the byproduct of it being a diamond-selling album. Um yeah, and like I kind of I, I wonder how I would have felt about this record two years ago compared to now when like the Menzingers and the Dirty Nil have started Trojan horsing classic rock into my <laughs> into my like regular listening. Um, yeah, uh, not not really any thoughts on it on them going into it, but came away right, from okay. it really really intrigued um, about some about some parts. I'm sure we'll, we'll get into it when we talk about it in depth. Yeah, but yeah, all right. So when you, what is so interesting about the debut Van Halen record, I think, is if you look at where rock music was at the time that this came out. So this came out in 78. Um, you had Prog in Bloom, the likes of Free and Boston and Bad Company and Montrose and bands like that mm. were kind of, bloated and nice sounding um punk had happened but when you when you kind of look at the late 70s punk explosion by the time 1980 came about the clash had started dicking around with dub and reggae and making triple albums it turns to post-punk isn't it Yep, well, the Pistols had made one album and split up and New and then, Wave was on yeah, the way. And... Obviously, Leiden then went and did Public Image Limited. Yeah. So that, kind of, that, that, to me, illustrates the transformation. But even, like, it's kind of whisper it, but Black Sabbath, at this point in time, had just made Technical Ecstasy and Never Say Die in 76 and 78. Aerosmith were kind of starting the slump that nearly ended them i don't mind draw the line which came out in 77 but it's not up to the glory period of what had come before it um 
when this album dropped, is it fair to say that when you think about that and uh, kind of this was still Deep Purple uh, being fucking huge, is it it's fair to say that Van Halen were nothing like what was around them? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the... If what you were saying there is a lot of stuff had become quite bloated, um, I would point to two bands who I would consider to be the golden bands of these couple of years at the very tail end of the 70s, which are Motorhead and Judas Priest. But neither of those bands are, you know, even at their height, ever as big as Van Halen, you know? Mm. Obviously, there's a there's a gulf between... Van. I mean, you know, Motorhead don't have a diamond selling record, do they? No, so, not even close. Yeah, and, and obviously it's a lot more... Um, it's scuzzier. So, but... On that kind of mass scale, yeah, Van Halen definitely had a more of a more of a punch to them than what was going on. Yeah, it's 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 interesting when you look at that that period. Like you got uh, ACDC as well. Oh yeah, shit, ACDC who were totally bucking the trend. But Judas Priest had kind of I always love what Scott Ian says about Judas Priest in that so many of the bands that came before them like had elements of the blues and things like that, whereas Priest were the first band that just sounded like metal. They made it British steel. Yeah, and Motorhead um, much like ACDC. Like, their own thing, their own way, 100% of the time from the beginning. Like, much of a musical evolution with those bands? Not really. But why bother when your song is that good? Um, but Van Halen and the, the, the makeup of that band. Dave Lee Roth. Absolutely nothing like the style of frontmen that we're about at that time. Even when you look at... Steven Tyler's a guy that was influenced by the British invasion and all those kind of things. But it felt like once Van Halen happened, they they were the band that ushered in the 1980s and what was going to happen. When you look at what was popular in rock throughout the 80s, the chances are it wouldn't have sounded the way it sounded without Van Halen, be that the band or Eddie Van Halen. Mm. Um... Well, how do you feel about this record? Why is this the one Van Halen record that you like, Perrin? I mean, I kind of already said it. It's, it's the fact that it's not a bloated, overblown, like horribly sickly produced, um, stale cash cow, as I consider a lot of the 80s glam to be. It feels more alive than that. I mean, although, granted, it did take three and a half minutes into their discography before Eddie needed a wank with <laughs> Eruption. <laughs> So, but I mean, eruption is pioneering, right? I mean, it's, like it's all eruption, right. <laughs> eruption, eruption was no, but I just mean in terms of the instrument itself. Yeah, mm. yeah, it is fucking just massive sounding and totally different in terms of its style to everything else. I mean, to give you an example of a pop culture reference as to how far ahead of its time eruption was. In Back to the Future, where Marty McFly pretends to be an alien and has to scare his dad, George McFly, into believing that he's from the future, he puts eruption into a Walkman, puts it on George's head while he's asleep and blasts it into his ears because it's totally incomprehensible. Yeah, yeah I mean... Point, but like, in terms of what the guitar is capable of doing, 
the speed, the the style, the, the, the that kind of two-handed tapping style yeah. that no one had heard before. Like, he's... His invention, I mean, I mean categorised basically by eruption and the intro to Atomic Punk. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, though, with me, it's just, it's just, you know, it's... Maybe, I guess, obviously now it doesn't feel as um, mind-blowing as it would have been back then, but I kind of consider it, you know, like, the weird stuff on Volume 4 by Black Sabbath, where obviously Volume 4 has got a bunch of great songs on it, but it's also got weird tracks of just guitar feedback and just Tony dicking about because he's on shitloads of coke. <laughs> uh, I, I kind of consider it to be the the glam metal equivalent of that, even if it's not on one of their more bloated records. To be fair, though, like if it's you, you know, because I hadn't actually considered the fact that this was probably the first time that a tap a tapping solo was like recorded and especially um, went mainstream. Like I feel like you would, if you've got this tool that no one else has ever used in your arsenal, you would chuck it in, wouldn't you? Like put it in a song. You don't need a I mean, like to be nonsense fair, interlude. To be fair, if like I think that the the cover of um, the Kinks and the blues track on this are perfect examples of the fact that so much of this album does seem to exist for Eddie Van Halen to then go widdly 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 over it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you know, I mean, so I don't I don't think um, it was necessarily a fact of like it being him doing eruption then, but I didn't see. I, I was really surprised that Eruption was the second song on this record. Like, imagine the second song on your debut album being you doing that. Like, just such a bizarre, con- especially when no one's done it before. Like, I think it's, it's such a. It, I think the way that Eruption leads into it, it leads into you really got me, didn't it? Yeah. Um, when that gives way to that riff fucking huge it almost feels like it works as an interlude into you really got me to, to move from the album's most complex piece to its most basic seriously out there um yeah so so what do you what do we take on van halen in terms of his guitar playing style so i um like when i was when I was um, first like learning to play guitar, all of the sort of like YouTube videos or whatever I'd watched, I didn't even know that they were all demoing Eruption and other songs from this album. But listening to this album now, it's like, oh, that's what every single guitar tutorial video opens with. Like he's <laughs> he's he's the guitarist's guitarist. It's flamboyant. It's over the top. It's fuck you. I can play more notes than you can in in the same amount of time. Um, and that's not something that particularly usually appeals to me, but when you put it into the context of of the era and the fact that, you know, like, what sort of, what shredders on this level were about, you know what I mean? Like, I, it, it's something that isn't for me, and I do think that it, it, it his guitar playing does feel like, and here I am doing this again, um, or on on some of the tracks... I can't really knock it when it's like that level of skill. It, it, to me, the, the 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 best side of of Eddie's guitar playing on this record is, I mean, when you listen to the riff on "Ain't Talking About Love," still, it's just it's the the pristine example of how far ahead of the curve he was at that point in time. Yeah. That riff, even to this day, that riff is is still unlike anything else. 
It's so weird, sonically, but it is as iconic as literally any riff you want to name, yeah. while being weird as shit. Like, Feel Your Love Tonight has a similar thing going on, but it's obviously like way, way, way less iconic. But to me, it's... Like, I mentioned the two-handed tapping uh, and the speed thing. I mean, it's fucking bizarre to consider Van Halen as a as any way influenced on thrash at all. But it's hard to imagine. When you listen to... I mean, Sabbath are obviously credited with the start of metal and all the rest of it. It's hard to imagine the pace of those records without the soloing of what Van Halen brought to the fore by the time that fucking Mustaine is going a billion miles an hour. Yeah. Or, or the, the fucking the massive kind of dueling guitar part in one by Metallica without, without Van Halen's influence. Yeah. But what's super, super interesting to me is that intro that intro on Atomic Punk. When you look at what he does on the guitar and how influential that is on Tom Morello being the, yeah. the main person who you point at. You go, that is someone who wants to take this six-string instrument and make it sound unlike anything that you thought this fucking bit of wood with some strings on it was capable of. Yeah, it does kind of feel like throughout this entire record, he's essentially laying down the gauntlet for look what you can do with a guitar. Um, and, you know, you know what, you're, what you're talking about, like with Thrash and stuff, like it, it's almost like, you know, Eddie Van Halen turning up and doing Eruption's second song is such a, like, go on then to everyone else ever. And I guess... And everyone that was in the game at the time. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean... Well, that, like, that's what I was going to say. It feels like he turned up and made it a competition. Do you know what I mean? Like, because who the fuck wants to be peers with the guy that can do that? <laughs> and the, the maddest <clears throat> thing about Eddie Van Halen is that it's the... It might be my least attractive thing about this Van Halen record. I fucking love Dave Lee Roth. I love Dave Lee Roth <laughs> in a way that is superhuman. You're talking about a man who has spent uh, I, a couple of weeks ago, I spent an entire morning, well, much to my wife's chagrin, watching videos of him doing samurai sword stuff on YouTube <laughs> on the television. <laughs> I spent I spent literally about an hour and a half on it because I'm just I'm just fascinated by him. The the level of personality from Dave Lee Roth yeah. on this record is fucking mad. Like when you consider what heavy metal and rock front men were at this point in time it was just so different like the, the he made everyone else look so po-faced like even when you consider like I, I always go back to Steven Tyler because he's one of my favourite rock front men of all time but when you consider what Tyler is known for like he ushered that in first and that is uh, like Tyler had been going for a fair few years at that point in time but the level of personality and show uh, like genuine superstardom it 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 speaks volumes that Van Halen had been smashing the game live for four years before they'd recorded this record oh interesting it definitely it definitely feels like 
you've been invited to Rock's most alive party at this point in time. And the the squeals and the 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 weird shit and the way that he would usher in almost like your turn to 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 build towards those Van Halen guitar solos. Fucking mad. Yeah, Dave that's, that's exactly it, isn't it? It's the fact that you've got two of the biggest personalities. I mean, one of whom obviously isn't even having to, to talk to do it, but his, his guitar lines are such a show-off personality in the way David Lee Roth is on the mic. And it's those, those two things um, come in, you know, in tandem. Sometimes they can feel like, you know, one's trying to outshine the other, but sometimes it is that thing where it's like, right, you know, I've been here showing off for a minute. Now I'm going to get my mate to do it. <laughs> yeah, it, to- it totally does. It, fe- it feels like that, like, th- I mean, th- they are a band that were, and those two in particular, that were in competition yeah. with one another from the very beginning. I mean, it's, okay, you're going to redefine what it is to be a guitar player, right? Meanwhile, I'm going to take my mic stand and do all kinds of fucking mental samurai moves that you take years to perfect. Like, I will still do things to shine the spotlight my way. Like, can you see, like, star jumps this high? Have you seen a rock man willing enough to do the splits at this point (laughs) in time? Have you bollocks? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they, they obviously, they needed to have a front man who could hold his own against someone like Eddie, or otherwise it would just be the Eddie show. Well, there's a difference between Van Halen and, like, Joe Satriani, right? Yeah, exactly. It's that. And it's the... I don't know how exactly that compares to, like, you know, Sammy Hagar era, but in terms of just having those two personalities, like, at the front, that both would be able to carry a band in their own right is is what, what makes it. Yeah. I think that Van, uh, sorry, uh, Sammy Hagar uh, held his own through just being one of the one of the best voices ever. Like it was, Dave Lee Roth was in that band because he lived locally and he had a PA. Very similar sort of thing <laughs> to Ozzy Osbourne. Um, That's and, mad, isn't it? Imagine yeah. thinking like, oh yeah, David Lee Roth lives down the street. We'll get him. Yeah, he's, he's, got a, he's got a PA, that'll do. What? Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, I I feel like when he left the band, the thing to do was to get someone who could match all of the others musically. Because the rhythm section in this band, when you've got Eddie and Dave Lee Roth, it's easy to forget Alex Van Halen fucking rules. That, I, I say it, I've said it before on this podcast, but that Hot for Teacher thing, yeah, one take... That's one take. Literally first take, that's what you hear. <laughs> Fucking insane. But Michael Anthony, beyond the, the showmanship of his own and the Jack Daniels bass and all the rest of it, like the the you have to fill the notes between the Van Halen brothers. The same sort of thing as why I always rave about Rex Brown, right? It's not easy. But when you isolate the bass I mean, particularly on Running With The Devil. When Eddie yeah. starts soloing, the, there's so much space in Van Halen's music, which is mad when you consider how fast he plays and shreds and all the rest of it. Mm. There's a lot of space 
in van in the sound of their music and he fills it so fucking brilliantly with those bass runs and that thudding style of his it's fucking insane i think that the the um the biggest uh look to where the world is going to go on this record through all of those massive songs is Jamie's crying. Yeah. When they bring in that pop element to the form massively. Yeah. And again, just so personality led by Dave Lee Roth. But that is kind of ushering in. I mean, you've only got to look at, I mean, fucking Def Leppard went from being a new wave of British heavy metal band to being the Def Leppard that you know now. White Snake, White White Snake, Bon Jovi, Poison, even Motley Crue, hair metal in, in general speaks for itself, um, and much like Corn, like the way that you mentioned the words new metal to Jonathan Davis, like it's like no 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 no, <laughs> like yes 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 yes, whether you like it or not. Um, and Van Halen feel the same. Dave Lee Roth in particular. When you talk about the glam bands that came after it, he's like, ugh. Um, but there's always been something cooler and harder about Van Halen, particularly pre-1984. And so there's not always been something cooler and harder than Van Halen. That's not always true. No, I, I, <laughs> I, no within, within that realm. I, I, to an extent. I, again, I'm, I'm not having... What's your argument? Well, what I was saying earlier, that an album, like, I know you're saying there's a a big difference between this Van Halen and the Van Halen of the mid-80s with Sammy Hagar, but um, that's exactly my point. They they have definitely gone through periods where they've been cooler and harder, i.e. this record. That's it. That that opening, the opening first four albums, Fair fair Warning uh, uh, in particular. Yeah, I'm I'm just not saying that I don't think it would be fair to go, oh, yeah, they were always... um, you know, uh, more more credible than the glam shit going on around them because uh, up to you know, 19, uh, before nineteen eighty four. Yes, <laughs> that's it. Yeah, that sorry, that that was what I said. Like pre nineteen eighty four, absolutely. And it's it's interesting that basically it took Guns and Roses to kind of break the Van Halen influence. Like when Guns and Roses turned up and had thrown so much into a blender. And in Slash, you had someone who would kind of melded the character playing of what went before Eddie Van Halen with the speed. Yeah. And they were throwing in all these things like blues and fucking glam and punk and metal and all these things into a blender. It took until Guns N' Roses. And then after that, when you had James and Faith No More and all those bands that changed the trajectory whatsoever. But between 78... And the mid '80s, looking at like looking in popular rock music and what had happened, Van Halen kind of changed everything, and that that was the album that did it. Van Halen's debut record. Anything else to add? It's not as good as Abigail. It's way <laughs> it's better not. than Abigail. It's not way, at all. Way better. No. Absolutely. <laughs> like I know it doesn't have a fucking baby eating a mummified <laughs> version of it. That's all you need. I'll I don't give care. It that. I'll give it that. <laughs> Hold but on, do I the get flip to be side the... being it ain't, got, ain't talking about love. Well, yeah, I was going to say, if I get to be the deciding vote here, ain't talking about love is what switches it. Like, I can't believe how fucking great that song is. But then there are the shooby-doobies at the end of, I think it's I'm the one. <laughs> the 
I'm the one's massive, though. Oh, I'm not having it. Yeah, anyway, <laughs> for another day, Van Halen's debut record. Hair metal on that sock metal. Love it. Right, we end in the noughties with Killswitch Engage's The End of Heartache. Perrin, why was it such a massive deal uh, in London last week? Howard Jones joining Killswitch Engage on stage. Um, I think that's, I mean, is that, that's got to be the first time that those guys have shared a stage, right? No, it's not. Is it not? No, I mean they, they didn't. They um, I'm pretty sure they they've shared stage at various occasions. They did it on the um, is it the Roadrunner United show where they uh, there's a song with both Jesse and Howard up. I think you're right. Yeah, ignore me. Yeah. So right. to me, so- it, it it wasn't like a huge deal. Like holy shit, it's because it's not like um, sometimes when those reunion things happen, it's there them burying the hatchet after a long period of time. Like you know when. The Misfits come back together, or when Dave Mustaine joins Metallica on stage, or whatever. Yeah. If it's you know people have been at each other's throats, but have buried the hatchet for you know the sake of um, what they've accomplished together. And I, I I never felt like that with Killswitch. It was always like you know uh, Jesse and Howard have always seemed to get on, despite it one replacing like- the other one, and then the other replacing him again. It's what made Jesse's um, Instagram post interesting to me. Because I, I, I felt like people have rarely kind of pitted them against one another. You no. know, it's great vocalist was replaced by great vocalist who was replaced by original great vocalist. Yeah, and it, I, it, it would surprise me if there are people out there. I mean, I'm sure there are people who have... I mean, everyone's got a preference. Personally, I prefer Jesse. But that's it's not like... Oh yeah, the only true kill switch is Jesse yeah, Beach kill for switch. Real. Like for there's fucking incredible classic records on with both frontmen on it. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Um we spoke about Howard Jones last week. Uh and he's like his latest record like the to- uh, he's for his latest record from the like the Torch band. How integral is Howard Jones vocal to the trajectory of Killswitch Engage's success. I think it's important. It's a little bit, I mean, obviously quite different, but when we were talking just a minute ago about having to replace David Lee Roth, uh, what they they want is they've got, I mean, Jesse was, um, I'm not saying he was a Jesse, a fucking David Lee Roth personality. Obviously not. He's a fucking hardcore guy. But um, I feel like they needed someone who wouldn't just be in his shadow, you know? They, they need someone who could step up and not just be Jesse 2.0 and not kind of, not cause that split to happen where people are going, oh, I, I miss the Jesse days. Because what they ended up getting with Howard is a vocalist who, regardless of your preference, is a fucking incredible singer. And he is very distinct from Jesse. He's very distinct from most vocalists, really. You know, you know him as soon as he comes in. And it, his... his the, the sheer power on his voice. I'm going to talk about Howard Jones when we did the Bloodstock review because I saw him perform with Jaster's band and they were doing a bunch of covers and stuff. And the one that really got me is they covered Bury Me in Smoke and Howard Jones singing Bury Me in Smoke but somehow, wow. but somehow, like he somehow had like the fucking Anselmo drawl but with the sheer, you know, the classic Howard Jones power behind it and I was like, fucking hell, this is mental. And... You know, that just level of sheer ability as a vocalist, but in tandem with the the emotive aspect of it as well, obviously, because, um, I mean, it was there with Jesse, you know, My Last Serenade and that, but 
Howard is a lot more, you know, lovelorn kind of um, emotive, especially in his like lyrics, and that proved not just important for this era of Killswitch, but important for everything about kind of commercial metalcore to follow. Yeah, it felt as though had um, was something that's very that's not really said very much about Howard's role in the in the history of Killswitch is it's hard to imagine when Killswitch came back with Disarm the Descent where you listen to a song like Always it's hard to imagine a song like Always existing without Howard's contribution to Killswitch both in terms of his approach to the vocals in Killswitch and the on Alive or Just Breathing there's a lot of um, yeah it's metal fucking angry shit purging catharsis that's what yeah that's what matt is but with um with howard having that i know he's he always cite i've i've read him in the past citing vela from him as one of his favorite lyricists yeah, yeah that makes sense have, having that kind of lovelorn thing uh an aspect to his to his lyrical narrative i, I always think of him as emo dio I love it, love it. That's <laughs> fucking brilliant. I, I have yeah, on my spot on. I genuinely have on my on my notes that I didn't realise Killswitch were an emo band for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, there you go. But that, that's that, that him bringing that style to the core is such an overlooked thing in Killswitch's history and its trajectory. But when it comes to Killswitch, I I kind of I I rarely listen to an album in full. Right, because I like so much of what they've done, and I've, I'm I'm an excitable chap. You will have noticed. <laughs> so I, I I get a couple of tracks into this, and I fancy a bit of that and a bit of that, and like there's so many great Killswitch records. The sheer consistency of this album, when you've not listened to it for a while, is fucking outrageous. Yeah, I mean, everyone will talk about the big songs, as I'm sure we'll get onto, but the album tracks on this, the ones that no one talks about, are brilliant. Mate, like, Ryan, what's your time? Like, you you said I didn't realise Killswitch were an emo band for a bit. This album, had you listened to this record before? No, I I knew the I knew the singles. Um, I saw yeah. I saw them live at Download. I think it was Jesse's first show back, maybe. So I never actually saw right. them with um, Howard at all. Um, but like, obviously, flicking through music channels, you saw the Holy Diver cover a million times. You heard Rosa Sharon. You heard End of Heartache. Um, mm. But yeah, I because those those songs to me, I'd kind of forgotten about them at the time as well. But in the context of the record, around all this other brilliant stuff. It, it really puts a lot of um, metalcore into, into perspective, I think. And like the way that I typically feel like, oh, I don't really, I don't really care for this as a genre, but I fucking love this record. Like, I, I can't believe how good it is. Like, this is the gold standard, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, and, and yeah, it's, it's, it's the fact that you can have singles like that and the album still doesn't feel like, you know, single then three other songs, then another single. It's it is all. Like, the way it feels like an, it well. feels like an album full of fucking singles. Yeah, especially like when you hit play on this album, that <laughs> the opening run of like first four songs is fucking 
Black Album Master of Puppets worthy fucking brilliant. Mm. It does not let up for a fucking second till you get to inhale and that kind of gives you a bit of a breather. But the what is it that makes this album so turning me into a dribbling gibbon with every passing second? I feel like <laughs> so 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 for me as um as sort of the the outsider on this one, um the thing that really really stood out to me is that so many bands who who mix melody and heaviness feel like they're tacking the melody on and this because of the sheer fucking power in Howard's voice and like he must that there isn't another vocalist alive that I've ever heard who makes me want to just clench a fist during a chorus <laughs> do you know what I mean like when he really lets his vocal... the power ballad air grab all the way through. yeah fully but but he has that kind of voice but it, it never sounds ridiculous it always sounds authentic it never sounds unnatural for the song they can do the heaviest fucking thing that they have done and then he can come in and do a do a clean vocal and it will still somehow elevate the song rather than making it feel flat that's something that I don't think I've heard another metalcore band do I don't think um, I don't think that many of them have the tools to do it and that, to me that's why this is such a such a standout yeah I, I agree the, I mean obviously uh, I would compare that to some other bands of the, of this genre who do a similar thing well like you know Trivium are fucking brilliant choruses. When you get to, you know, pull harder with the chorus, it's not like a, a drop. But, um, you know, same with Avenged, same with obviously much more niche, but same with someone like Bleeding Through. But when you've got a singer like Howard, it really does just push it further. I mean, when you were saying about, like, the heaviness going into a melody, I, I would look at something like Breathe Life, where Breathe Life has, like, the riff. It's, like, at the gates is what it is. It's so many... Death metal. When we were doing the um the like the torch album last week, I said the thing that I was missing is the way the kill switch was a melting pot of kind of it has you know obviously the the metal of Metallica and Pantera, but it's also got fuckloads of death metal and fuckloads of hardcore. And the hardcore is more prominent on on the the Jesse records before this, but it's still there. You know the when you've got like World of Blaze, that kind of stomp is really kind of like reminiscent of that. But then the the melodic death metal that makes it genuinely savage when it fucking goes it's not a weak record at all in as you would associate with kind of a lot of really overly commercial metalcore that borrows from this mm, yeah but then you go into that chorus on breathe life and i think a part of it is you know howard's vocals there's nothing weak about them they are pure chest beating power but in a way that is also really emotive in a way beyond uh when you what you consider like you, the normal chest beating kind of heavy metal vocals where it's all macho yeah, that's that's all what, what I meant about the authenticity of it, though. Like, you know, he he has that voice and he has that band behind him, but he's still singing about having a broken heart. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's that's it feels like a level of maybe it's maybe it's not confidence or something, but that it takes a certain character to be able to go. I can I can be very vulnerable lyrically on this and still sound fucking huge. It doesn't come along often. Mm. That the I, th- I feel like it's almost it's the the rich bassiness to his voice. Yeah. That means that he could sing, like it. It's just a bonus that he's a really good lyricist. But I would believe him singing any old nonsense because it's that sound just sounds so so authentic, so real. Yeah. So like he fucking means it. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously, I mean. 
when you've got the title track on this, the the verses on the end of Heartache, there's not actually a lot of instrumentation a lot of the time. You know, you'll have that chug, and then the verse, a lot of time it's purely carried by Howard's voice and very little else. He is front and centre in a huge way without even having backing a lot of the time, and yet people, like, want to belt it out just at the top of their lungs because of the sheer power and weight of it. 29 million plays that song as well mental um i also wait. also love that even though that is the quote-unquote ballad the the riff as it goes into those verses from the chorus is still slayer as fuck yes. <laughs> it's so yes. it's it's probably the most like menacing riff on the album but it's in the ballad track so what is it about the album tracks on this record because like when when people uh, insist on doing like albums in full, I always think that's fine for certain records. When it just became the norm and people were doing it for records where they were, uh, they already generally play all the best songs from it. What is it that makes a, an album like this the exception to that rule? Because you know, World of Blaze is as good as anything on this record. Yeah, I think it's exactly what you were just saying. A lot like a, a lot of those albums, you're not really... The, the thing I love about album full shows when they're good is going to see albums where they're not playing that stuff, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. um, and this, obviously, they have the staples, but they're not playing some of these songs that frequently. So it'd be going to see, you know, fucking incredible songs that don't get that outing. Spot on. All right, how much are we looking forward to Howard and Jesse both being on a kill switch song. We know it's coming. We've yeah. seen that we've oh, seen I'd the forgotten stu- what's happening. We've seen yeah. the studio <laughs> shot. Uh it just I mean it's things- it's on this album, isn't it? It's on Take the Oath. They they both turn up. But I feel like now, especially Jesse, Jesse is a a stronger, more commanding singer now than he was fifteen years yep. ago. So I feel like now it'll be like, you know, as two point oh of that thing with all of that growth in their their voices, it's going to be a brilliant thing. Uh, There is two things I'm looking forward to and I hope happen. That, obviously, that song is now going to happen. Can't wait for it. And I do hope that at some point in time, Killswitch release a live record so that we have recorded versions of Jesse doing these songs. Because while I I, I love both vocalists, um, the the thing that I was most excited about going to see Killswitch for the first time, I was... um, still interviewing bands backstage so i missed when fucking uh jesse Blaze's first show at download gutted i remember talking to everyone about it in the bar in a hotel that night just being like oh, motherfucker <laughs> um but when they did that shepherd's bush show the thing that i was most excited about going in was hearing jesse doing those songs so it would be nice to have I'm happy to just have the Howard versions. It's not about a versus or a preferring. It's just the appeal of having Sonic. Like I, I, I think that it would be in poor taste considering how cool they are with each other to ever do a greater of two evils yeah. thing like that, like Anthrax did with John Bush doing the Jay Belladonna stuff. But mm. I'd love a live record. I love that we've got through talking about this album barely mentioning Rose of Sharon which just like just one of the fucking greatest metalcore songs ever written the the maddest experience when that came on Scuzz when it was the single at the time 
uh, just out of nowhere. Like now, you, you're given an announcement of an announcement to expect. You know, yeah. we're yeah. expecting a Bring Me the Horizon song on the twenty first. Like whatever. Like, but the the sheer just sitting in your front room and suddenly being like, oh fuck, new kill switch, and it's Rose of Sharon. Is it, one it, of, I was say the second it comes in, like it fucking tells you to pay attention. <laughs> like just insane one of the best memories <laughs> like fucking going what a band uh what's your favorite song on this record mine Guns is rose of, of the head mine is rose of sharon rose of sharon is fucking like the way it starts off so unbelievably aggressive every riff that it rips through it has so much momentum and it feels like it stalled for a second but by the time it's gotten to the ending and it's opened up into the most you know heartstring tugging melody that is to me, like the most kind of fucking powerful moment here, Rose of Sharon is unbelievable. It really is, and this is only my second favorite Kill Switch album. <laughs> What's your favorite? Alive or Just Breathing. Okay. Uh, yeah, mine's um, mine's the title track. I have become a Howard Jones super fan in the last week, <laughs> and that's just basically a vehicle of him doing. Well, just being Howard Jones to, in the most Howard Jones way he can, and I just yeah, Spot and, like, and like and like the way that that sort of pretty delicate opening gives way to that verse chug as well, and then his voice comes in. It's just like so, it's it's so good. It, <laughs> like fucking dictionary definition of commanding. Um, I think I think a bid farewell is my favourite song on this record. There is something so fucking insane about the way the sound of those wailing lead guitars playing off against against Howard's voice in that chorus yeah is magic on record it is absolute perfection yes, um yeah it, it depends on what day you can it's interesting like when you say that about it's not even my favorite kill switch record it's like just depends on what day you catch me on most days i'll say this but as daylight dies is fucking incredible alive or just breathing incredible fucking disarm the descent, yeah, disarm incredible. Descent. like just fucking what a ridiculous band <laughs> pretty much yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right that is kill switch engages the end of heartache which ends the, the first ever that's not metal time tunnel we'll definitely do this again in uh in in weeks of to pick other albums. albums that are better than van halen fuck off <laughs> uh, that's so next, next, next time next... can we do like 20s 30s like can we just do <laughs> let's do glenn miller <laughs> the Carpenters um, yeah coming up on next week's show we're going to be looking hopefully at the new album from Alice in Chains I hope we get it in time but we're definitely going to be looking at new albums from Trophy Eyes and a couple of others that I don't really want to name until we bring it to you next week because there is an absolute riff storm of an album that we're going to be covering next week so make sure you are subscribed to That's Not Metal powered by You Discover youdiscovermusic.com go check out that Enter Sandman special it is wicked we'll see you next week Miriam! <laughs> Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.